Hello and welcome to another episode of the Microbiome Research X podcast. I'm Idar Sandu, an editor of the AMRX website that features the latest news, views and research highlights on the microbiome in Japan and globally. Our guest today is Sarah Klassen of the Max Planck Institute for Biology in Tübingen, Germany. Sarah is the winner of the 2023 Noster and Science Microbiome Prize for her essay entitled The Sound of Silence. Details about Sarah's prize-winning essay and her research can be found on the Noster and MRX websites. Sarah, thank you for joining us today and congratulations on being selected as the grand prize winner of the Noster and Science Microbiome Prize for 2023. Um, can I start by asking you to give us an overview of your research activities, um, perhaps some insights into events that triggered your interest in the microbiome? That's a great question. Um, yes, so my graduate work was, was not in the microbiome at all. Um, I attended uh, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I was in the, the Department of Cell Biology studying how yeast sense and respond to changes in oxygen concentration. Um, and it was a lot of very mechanistic work, um, but but very limited in how it was applied to you know, human health. Um, basically the, the system we were studying wasn't quite um, uh, conserved in humans. Um, but during the time I was there, the department did a faculty search and the uh, first round of candidates, um, the, the breakout candidate, the one who gave the, the most incredible talk was a woman who was studying the microbiome. And she studied how this lipid produced by bacteria in the gut trained the human immune system. And her work was just incredible. And it was this, the first time that I'd actually seen, um, a really mechanistic study of the microbiome. And it kind of opened my eyes to this entirely um, uh, novel input to, to the, the human cell um, in the sense of, you know, bacterial products affecting um, intestinal epithelial cell um, homeostasis. And um, I basically decided at that point that when I got my my degree, I wanted to do a postdoc in the microbiome field. Um, and I wanted to basically apply this mechanistic mind point, uh, sorry, mechanistic um, uh, understanding towards, towards the microbiome. Um, and um, Ruth Lay is, you know, a huge uh, figure in the field of the microbiome. You know, her work um, in Jeff Gordon's lab is really laid the foundation for a lot of um, important studies on, you know, the effect of um, gut microbiota on um, obesity. And um, basically, I applied to work in her lab as a consequence of that. And she had this project that was, you know, focused on um, flagellins and how they interact with the the human immune system. And it was just um, a perfect match of kind of my background in, in mechanistic work um, and uh, her her interests in the microbiome. 
I see. And what are you doing now? What um, approaches, methodology are you using for your research and what what's problems are you trying to solve? Yeah, so um, the project that I worked on in, in Ruth's lab was really um, focused on these uh, proteins produced by bacteria that allow them to move called flagellins. And what was really interesting is that, um, you know, some common pathogens um, produce flagellins. And so our immune system has evolved over time to recognize uh, these proteins and to respond accordingly. And a lot of previous work in the field actually identified like the precise amino acid sequences that were required to interact with the human receptor. And what we noticed is that First of all, not just pathogens produce these flagellins, a ton of beneficial bacteria do as well. And when we looked at the sequence of these um, beneficial derived flagellins, what we found is that they actually had the same amino acid sequences as those of the pathogens. Um, and so this was kind of baffling to us. Um, and so, you know, we decided to look and see how they interact with the receptor. And what we found is that even though many of these flagellins have the same sequence that would be expected to interact with the receptor, um, they actually are extremely poor activators of the human immune response. And we called them silent flagellins um, because they don't really induce a response. Um, but at the same time, they can still bind to the receptor. And so that was this, this key finding that these flagellins produced by, by beneficial gut bacteria, they retain binding, but they decouple that binding from activation. Um, and so then um, this, we called this silent recognition. And the, the work I did in the lab was to actually figure out how this happens. And what we discovered is that these silent flagellins actually have only one binding site to the, the receptor um, in the human immune system, TLR5. Um, but uh, the pathogenic flagellin has two binding sites. And it's the, the absence of the second binding site that basically prevents activation of TLR5. Um, and then we were able to dig through metagenomes from, from healthy individuals and actually um, quantify the abundance of these silent flagellins throughout human populations. And um, we actually discover that um, the silent flagellins are fairly depleted in, in populations from industrialized um, countries. And so whether or not there's um, some sort of um, health connection there, um, or, or basically uh, are these silent flagellins protective in some sense um, from inflammation, um, we we haven't yet investigated that. I see, I see, I see. Um, and do you have some examples of specific findings that you can share with us and their implications? Oh, yes. Yeah, so so we, we basically only looked at whether these silent flagellins activate um, an NF-kappa B reporter. Uh, NF-kappa B is this major pro-inflammatory pathway. Um, but what we're now looking into is actually um, whether these silent flagellins are having a more um, uh, 
basically subtle effect on on the human cell. And so instead of you know just looking at whether or not this reporter is turned on or off, we're actually doing transcriptomics, we're doing RNA-seq, and actually looking at uh, gene expression changes. And so what we're finding is that these silent flagellins are actually um, being sensed by, by the cell and they are having an effect. And so we're actually trying to figure out now um, how uh, these flagellins are actually exerting this subtle um, effect on the cells. Um, and then we're also looking into uh, more adaptive immune responses. So um, B and T cell responses to silent flagellins um, to see whether or not um, they are actually having an effect. And the next question is really, um, what are the hurdles? What are the challenges ahead that you have to overcome to achieve some of your goals that you've uh, been talking about? Yeah. Um, so I think... Well, so I think this is kind of a hurdle in general for the microbiome field is that so many of these uh, these species that we're discovering um, are extremely difficult to work with. And the one that you know we've worked with quite a bit that produces our canonical silent flagellin uh, is this bug, Rosberia hominis. Um, it, it is culturable, so at least we have that going for us. Um, but then the next step would obviously be to sort of knock out these flagellins and to look at, um, you know, whether there's a change in motility of the actual microbe um, or whether, you know, there's an effect on the, the human. You know, if we uh, remove the silent flagellin, then do these, do these bacteria become less beneficial? Um, do we see an increase in an inflammatory response? Because the thing to remember is that many uh, bacteria don't just produce one flagellin, they can produce multiple. Um, and so, for example, our hominis produces four. Um, one is inflammatory, one is silent, and the other two are, are evasive. They don't do anything um, with respect to the receptor. Uh, and so the next step, obviously, would be if we could somehow get this to be genetically tractable. Um, and so there are people in, in Ruth Lay's lab right now who are trying to work on that. But I think that's, that's really a difficult hurdle that the field is, is encountering across a wide variety of, um, of, of interests. So. Okay, can we now move on to the prize and ask, um, why did you decide to submit uh, an, an essay for this prize? Well, it was kind of uh, serendipitous, I would say. Um, I so we we got the manuscript ready for submission in May, and then it was accepted in early November. And uh, I think this is fairly common among scientists that basically by the point by the time you get to the point where your manuscript is accepted, you're you're very sick of it, and you've been working on it for so long and making so many tweaks. Um, that is kind of a, just a huge relief to no longer look at it anymore. And so um, I had had maybe half a month to a month um, where I had kind of been done with the paper and it, it gave me a little bit of distance so that then um, when I saw the essay contest announced, um, it was enjoyable to to reflect on the work and to write it in in sort of a different way, make it more accessible to um, a broader audience, and also just to kind of think more about 
the story in the broader context, um, which we did thinking about um, the role of adjuvants in, in therapeutics and how important it is that the innate immune system isn't completely dysregulated because then you have really bad downstream effects on adaptive immune responses. Um, and so that was sort of why I wrote the essay. I also really enjoy writing. Um, uh, and so I, I guess um, to give advice to, to future people who are thinking of applying, uh, what I would recommend is, is reading, you know, work in the New Yorker, which is a fantastic source of, of essays. Um, and also um, like the Best American Essay series is one that I enjoy reading. Um, and it's just the first paragraph, I think, is really key to, to grabbing your audience um, and, and engaging them. Um, and so uh, I, it was really enjoyable to, to write the essay. Um, and it's a, an incredible honor to be able to reach so many people um, uh, and share our work. So. And did you ask uh, other people for their advice? Did you ask other people to read through your manuscript before submitting it? Um, what was the actual process? Yeah, I think that's another important thing. Um, so my my partner is also a scientist, but he does not um, work in the microbiome field. And so he had kind of, um, you know, he was aware of my work, but not incredibly close to it. And so having him as an editor um, read it was really useful for me to clarify any points that were basically unclear to a broader audience. Um, and so I would highly recommend um, running it through at least one or two editors before, um, before submitting. And what has been the response from the wider world since... Uh... The prize for this year was announced and the winners' uh, press releases were sent out and it was uh, published um, in Science Magazine. Have you had any feedback? Yeah, um, it was so nice after the, the essay came out um, in was it June um, or July. Um, but I, was, I received all these emails from people who you know, had worked in the flagellant TLR5 field you know, 15 years ago um, who were interested in reading the original uh, paper. And so I, I sent out um, the actual research article. Um, and then there were other people um, who were retired professors at universities who would email me and share um, little observations that they had had in like the flagellant TLR5 area that they never followed up on. And so um, it definitely sparked um, conversations. It was extremely unexpected and, and fantastic. Thank you, Sarah, for your insights on the microbiome and the process of writing a winning essay for the NOSTA and Science Microbiome Prize. I wish you all the best with your research and I look forward to Catching up with you again in the future to learn more about your activities. Thank you. This concludes this episode of the Microbiome Research Podcast. Further information about the podcast is available on the MRX website. And on behalf of the editors, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to your company again.